welcome to the Black and Comp Bio podcast. We are your hosts, Janae Adams and Melissa Minto. Today we have Dr. Javon Carter, a bioinformatics scientist at RTI International. He has had various roles in academia, industry, and now nonprofit. Javon Carter is a bioinformatics scientist at RTI, known for his expertise in phylogenomic analysis, programming languages, genomic ancestry, and genomic bioinformatics tools. With a diverse career trajectory, he has held positions as a head microbiologist at Sabra, a bioinformatic analyst at Iquivia, and served in academia as an adjunct professor at both the University of Colorado Boulder and Wake Tech Community College. Driven by a passion for education, Dr. Carter is also a Researcher Academy instructor at RTI, contributing to the All of Us database. And through his diverse experiences and expertise, Dr. Carter has established himself as a highly skilled bioinformatics scientist, making significant contributions to the field and advancing scientific research in areas such as thrombosis, opioid addiction, and type 1 diabetes. Welcome, Dr. Carter. It is really weird to hear that stuff out loud. It's one thing to like have it on paper is nothing to have it out loud. It seems weird, but it sounds nice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, you you're you're very well accomplished. You have lots of experiences in different areas of STEM and science. So we're excited to learn more about your journey, how you navigated it, and your thoughts. But before we get into that, I'm going to start off with some science trivia. With your graduate work in evolutionary biology, we think that this question is very fitting. Okay, so question. This animal's fingerprints closely resembles that of a human's. So much so, in fact, that inspecting its fingerprints side by side with a human print makes it impossible to differentiate. What animal is it? The chimpanzee? No. Really? <laughs> no, that was also my guess. I was like, well, we share like 98%, but okay. Do you want a second guess? I do want a second guess. Is it an orangutan? Nope. <laughs> oh, man. All right. I feel like you're going to tell me I that. I honestly don't even know the answer. What's the answer? It's it's a koala. What? <laughs> <laughs> okay. I wasn't expecting that. All right. Well, now I got like my- Just uh, the fingerprints and nothing else? I guess so. I don't know about everything else, but the yeah, it's it's a koala that has an indistinguishable fingerprint from a human. So keep that in the back of your mind for activities. That is weird. Yeah, so I think we can start off with hearing more about your background. Basically, let's focus on how did you get to where you are today? When did you realize that science was uh, the field you wanted to pursue? Oh, yeah. Okay. I'll probably have to say when I was in fourth grade, it was like third and fourth grade. Uh, I, I'm really not studious, never have been. Probably never will be, which is always weird to say to people because like, well, you have your PhD. It's like, I know, but 
I'm not, I'm not a good student uh, per se. And I remember the only class that I was actually okay at, if not decent at, was science. And only reason why that was was because everything kind of made a lot of sense. English doesn't make sense to me because there's so many inconsistencies and they don't, English doesn't follow its own rules. History makes sense to me to a certain degree, but then at the same time, it doesn't make sense because why would you ever repeat yourself that many times? Well, history has a knack of doing that. And I'm like, why don't we ever learn from our history? We don't. And then when it comes down to uh, mathematics, that did actually make a lot of sense to me, but I am terrible at math because of uh, multiple different reasons, but I'm not the best at math, so I never felt very comfortable with it. Hence why science was just one of those fields where I actually did feel comfortable and it allowed me to make sense of some of the other fields like, you know, the the beginning or, or end of certain terms in science always makes sense when it comes down to understanding history, evolutionary biology, that makes a lot more sense to me. And then on top of that, when you're thinking about like math and applying the math to something, that makes more sense to me. So science was always like that, that, that link. So did you know what bioinformatics was early on? How did you encounter that? Uh, I had no idea what bioinformatics was. Like, I think most people, I think it's one of those things where for me personally, I kind of like stumbled onto it. I had no idea people even use computers this way until I even, until I got to graduate school. Because even when I was an undergraduate, I did research and, and everything like that. But I was typically, you know, the research I was doing was more hands-on and wasn't wet lab oriented and not, not compute computational. So I didn't figure that out until I got to grad school. Even in grad school, it was interesting because my, my principal investigator, she did not do bioinformatics. She knew of it and, and everything, but she didn't do it. And a lot of professors didn't do it. They're very, I'm not gonna use the word old school, but that's definitely not terminology, but they, they're more hands-on and applicational. There was, I think, six um, professors who did more bioinformatics things in our department. So it was, it was interesting, but no, to answer your question, I did not know at all until probably my, the middle or end of my first year in grad school. And that's when I realized that I was going to not do like physical, like, you know, going out and making, doing experiments. So more like ecological or like practical evolutionary experiments. And I was going to be doing more, not necessarily theoretical, but applying it on a genetic framework. Mm -hmm. So you kind of described how you chose kind of bioinformatics as a career path. I'm wondering, since you have experience in both like traditional academia and industry, how those two different environments differ and what you found to be rewarding in both or or challenges? So like the cross section between industry and, and academia in the grand scheme of things. So yeah, I think, well, where I'm currently at is kind of weird because it's, it's it has this academic feel to it even though it is, it's still more like very much so industry. So it's a weird, it's a really weird area. I know that in the traditional sense, you're not doing empirical research in industry. I think a lot of the companies, at least the ones that I've, I've looked into, mo- the main thing that you'll be doing, at least again, from my perspective, 
is like uh, optimizing things and and getting things ready to go for clients. You'll be doing research per se, but then it's not your job to interpret the results or anything like that. It's your job to do the analysis. And then after that, it's somebody else's job to interpret the results and then yell at you and ask you a million questions on exactly what you did for your analysis, which I have, I have had experiences with that. It's not the funnest thing, but everybody's different. But of course, in academia, you, you know, the whole, the main thing is, you know, I'm your, I'm my own boss. I can make my own hours and I can set all this stuff out and, and I can ask all these questions, which is all fine and good. But then the downside to that is, you know, you do have hours because you're typically teaching somebody. So you do have some set of hours. And on top of that, you got to constantly keep trying to get money all the time. And if you don't do that and you don't produce papers and you don't push out grad students, then people start wondering what you've been doing. You could have been doing awesome research, but if you're not actually like doing those things, then people start staring at you. And that pressure to achieve and become an overachiever in that sense is is a lot. So luckily in industry, especially where I'm currently at, that's not the case. And the things that we focus in on, at least at the RTI are are things where you know, the percentage or the likelihood of you actually getting grants and things like and, and contracts to to do your empirical research is rather high. For, for where I came from to now, because, of course, I came from like the evolution ecology background and we worked off of N, uh, NSF, so National Science Foundation money. And that is nowhere near as big as NIH money that th- those are you basically looking like a cup of water versus like a swimming pool. When it comes out. <laughs> yeah. Javon and I do work at the <laughs> same place and for the same, like in the same group. We both work in the Genomics Translational Research Center at RTI International. It's a new name change, which is why it took a little bit to get that out. But yeah, we don't work on all the same projects. I think the things that we share are are the opioid research that we do. So can you talk a little bit about the types of projects that you're working on at RTI? And yeah, what are you most excited about in terms of uh, the different research that you're doing? So yeah, I have to pull up my CV for that one. Um, I'm always forgetting something. Okay, so yeah, I work on opioid research, more of like a training platform for me because, of course, as you already know, we're double dabbling in transcriptomics and and this meta analysis, and these are new territories because the research that I typically do, or at least I used to do, was more evolutionary focused. So you know, obviously, genomics, things like that, you can infer evolution using transcriptomics, but I think that'd be extremely difficult. And I think it'd be very, very interesting because it's not like a clear, like it's not like a clear breakdown as to like what was inferred. And I mean, what was expressed in the past versus the present, but you can at least look at your your DNA and, and assume what's going on based off mutation rates and whatnot. Um, but anyway, yes, opioid uh, meta-analysis project, and then the other ones that I'm working on are like the uh, type one diabetes research. And that's with the early check group. And what I'm basically doing is calculating PRS and GRSs. So polygenic risk scores slash genetic risk scores, depending on who you talk to and what argument they want to say on how, did, how did, which one you define as what. But essentially calculating polygenic risk scores using whole genome uh, sequence data and trying to infer the risk of infants at birth 
if they, you know, might or might not have, I mean, the likelihood of them actually developing that phenotype. Another project I'm working on is the is the estrogen project, basically doing a GWAS on individuals with thrombosis, or at least characteristics associated with thrombo- thrombosis, which is just blood clotting. And these individuals hopefully should be exposed, they should have been exposed to estrogen or higher levels of estrogen because they're taking birth control versus people who are not and kind of running that route and trying to assess uh, certain certain groups of genes and see if there are any associations between those. And then the last project that I'm working on is the All of Us Researcher Academy. And that's the one where I'm working with HBCUs and trying to basically get those PIs, those postdocs and grad students kind of like up to par so that they can feel comfortable and, and good with using the researcher workbench for the All of Us database. And that one is is pretty fulfilling just because um, I get to actually go back to what I was I used to do in the past, which was kind of, you know, a little bit more diverse and inclusion type thing, but applying it uh, with a scientific lens, sort of speak. So I'm actually, actually like that one the most. Which is kind of weird because it's not actually research per se. It's helping other people do research, but it's more. I feel more fulfilled. I think there's a really nice diversity in what you have been able to work on, and I think on the surface, you know, most people would say, "Oh, like I could do this in a lot of different institutions or places." But my next question is. How do you feel that the nonprofit research institute structure specifically kind of contributes to you achieving the goals you've set forth? And I'm asking because I would want someone to have more insight into why they might be more attracted to nonprofit research institutes as opposed to other types of corporate structures. Okay. So I guess I have to first break down my interpretation, or at least my my understanding of how it works at my company as far as like the, the title nonprofit. Because originally, like, you know, a few years ago, if you were to ask me a nonprofit versus a for-profit company, I'm like, okay, well, a nonprofit is like some building off to the side, doing its own thing. Everybody kind of struggling, but everybody's happy because, you know, the money's all going towards a good place. A for-profit is, you know, everybody's money hungry and CEOs making $2 billion a year, whatever. So that's like my my general breakdown. Of, uh, and as you can tell, I was a little all over the place back then, but, <laughs> I, you know, that's just how it was in my head. Now, <laughs> from what I understand, the main difference between a nonprofit and a for-profit is basically money caps. Certain places, like especially executives and above, they have a money cap and and like the board of directors and things like that. They all have money caps and they can't exceed a certain amount as far as like salaries. That's not to say they, they're not making a crazy amount of money. It just yeah. means that the money, the, the, there is a cap on it. And then the rest of that money has to go back into the company in and of itself. That's why it's called a nonprofit. Because again, if it was for profit, yeah, you can, in theory, have those those CEOs making, you know, $5 million, $10 million, $20 million every year um, while you have other people who are begging for uh, increases in their salary, but they won't give it to them. Yeah. So, yeah. but with that being said, RTI. RTI, I think, is a very interesting area, at least where I'm working out within RTI, because number one, it's huge. There are 
areas of RTI where it feels like a normal company and it runs like a normal company. But then where I'm at, the research that I'm doing, if again, it kind of has that weird sense of this is a this is a university because you have this person it's kind of like the PI and then you and then you're a postdoc and you have some people who are not necessarily postdocs more like grad students like they have used these analogies a few times yeah <laughs> and I know it got to a point where I'm just kind of like normal to it now I'm like okay yeah so I'm like a postdoc all right yeah I can do that I can do that I can do that that's fine as long as I'm hopefully making a little bit more postdoc money I'm okay with that <laughs> Uh, but, but yeah, but for anybody who's looking into either or, I guess, I think this is a more of a unique situation, but I would say, you know, use that description that might help you out. Cause if you have any, for people who are like just double dabbling, trying to find what, where they fit, if you have any uh, reservations about, you know, companies that have huge divides within like their money breakdown or the money structure and, and, or if you, you know, I would just say like, like the incentives for a nonprofit is a lot of the incentives are surrounding the people who work within it, because again, the money has to go back into the company somehow. Yeah. So and, and since that's already the case, what better way to, to, to use the money than to help the, the, your employees feel comfortable there? Whereas a for-profit, they don't have to do any of that. They just, mm-hmm. they just choose to, uh, or they don't choose to. So that might be one factor, like your overall, like comfort in life and your overall, like mental health, things like those things could be, could be more, more focused in on at a nonprofit, but I'm not entirely sure. Cause I'm, I'm only one, I'm like a sample size of one in the grand scheme of things. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh-huh. Yeah, I think RTI has, it, and specifically for like the group that we work under, I feel like it has more of a academic feel with an industry pace. Mm-hmm. I feel like we're kind of spread across a lot of projects, mm-hmm. but they're more academic driven. Like we are interested in the interpretations and in the findings versus like, let me just analyze this data. Mm-hmm. And in terms of giving back to the company or the company, you know, pouring back into itself, you can, you see that in a lot of like the professional development that's driv- that's mm-hmm. like emphasized there. I feel like a lot of the conversations I have with my manager or a lot of the things that I see like coming out of RTI is like, all right, what do you want to do next? Or how can we support you do this? And meet, mm-hmm. how are you going to meet these goals that you've set for yourself? And so mm-hmm. I think it's very, it has a very good culture in, in terms of like trying to make you the best researcher, scientist that, that you want to be. So since we're talking about sort of the learning environment, Javon, what did you go to school for and how have your research interests shaped or shifted since finding grad school to now? I, so this might be a little bit of a long wind, long wind. <laughs> I can just feel it over the horizon. I'm telling you right now. Sure. Okay. So... Man, it all started when I was a kid. No, I was playing. So <laughs> what happened was like I went to school for biology and, you know, it was the traditional, the traditional route. And I'm going to say traditional because this is what happens to like mm, 60 percent, 80 percent of the people who actually go in for biology. They all trying to go to pre-med. That's, yeah. that's, that's like that's the thing. Oh, why are you a biology man? You're trying to go. You, you're going to be a doctor. 
yeah, I'm gonna be a doctor. I'm gonna take I'm gonna take over the world. I'm gonna be a doctor. I'm gonna go to grass. I'm gonna go to medical school. I'm gonna do it. Didn't even know what grad school was at the time. I just just knew of medical school. But then, like so many of us, you know, you do your first year and you start reassessing a lot of things. Oh man, that GPA is not where I want it to be. <laughs> oh, um, yeah. I gotta take how many more chemistry classes? Oh, uh, I don't know how this is gonna go well. Like, I just don't know how to go well. <laughs> so yeah, you start you start you start counting counting them eggs. And it's one of those things where I I I actually did jump around a little bit. And I think the main reason why I jumped around is because I just got scared. So a little bit about me. I have and I have always had really bad imposter syndrome. It's just how it is. And I, and every, and at this point, it ain't going to go away. I already know that for a fact at at my age, it ain't going away. Yeah. All I have to do, all I can do is just work on not letting it overcome me or or overwhelm me. But when I was, when I was an undergraduate, I used to basically every semester, I assumed I was going to get kicked out because of bad grades or something. And I didn't even have bad grades. I mean, I had like B's and C's and stuff as an undergraduate most of the time, but it was just one of those things where I just assumed that there was just going to be one class that kicks my butt and I'm going to, and they're just going to kick me out. The the semester before I actually like graduated, I was just like, okay, now I was actually, I was obviously wrong the last three years, but this is going to be the year that they're going to find me out and realize that I'm just actually too dumb to figure this stuff out. And on top of that, it was even more crazy because people always pushed about how hard biology was and how hard the STEM field was. So for me, I was like, okay, I, I'm obviously not going to be able to finish this thing up. I'm, ob- I'm obviously not going to be able to go in medical school. And I'm ob- and I also, at that point in time, towards the end of my, my undergraduate, I had the, I already started thinking about grad school more because uh, I had a mentor who, who kind of really pushed me to consider graduate school. So I already kind of switched things up. So I had an idea, like if I were to go to medical school, this is what it looked like. If I was going to go to graduate school, this is going to look like. But I wasn't going to get to that point because I was going to graduate. And then I graduated and I was like, okay, cool. Well, what am I supposed to do now? So I applied for grad school and I didn't even apply for, for medical school because I, I saw my GPA when I was done. I was kind of kind of pushing toward the very end, like if something were to change, it didn't, it didn't change. It was a good GPA, but it wasn't no... 3.8, which is basically what you need the minimum. <laughs> so, so yeah, I went ahead and applied for grad school. Did not get in the first time around. I applied to three schools and I didn't get into any of them because I had really bad GRE scores. I'm not a really good test taker. Like I think a lot of people, but standardized. For the record, the GRE is horrible. And I also had a horrible experience. Oh no, it is bad. We come back to that later, but. And it doesn't, it doesn't assess you whatsoever on your capabilities of a grad, of being like a successful grad student and beyond. It really doesn't. It's just honestly, to, to me, like a kind of like a cash grab to snatch up as much money as you can because there's like a $300 test and you have to pay over, at least over $100 on like the material to study for the test. But yep. we, that's a whole nother time conversation. But so, <laughs> so yeah, I, I didn't get in the first time around to the schools I wanted to apply for. And the funny thing was is that I wanted to apply to University of Colorado because the the guy who who really pushed me to go into graduate school, Dr. Dr. Doug Mills, he he kept emphasizing that that would be a great program for me. And I was like, I'm probably too dumb to get into that school, so I'm not going to apply for it because I don't want to disappoint myself. But then after I didn't get into the first the first three uh, schools I applied for, I had to wait another year. And I was like, well, I guess I might as well apply for it this time around and like just shoot my shot on it. 
and see what happens. In the meantime of me doing that and like reapplying for grad school multiple times, well, uh, I worked as a high school teacher and I worked as a as a, a, a microbiologist after the high school teacher job, just because teaching in high school is not the most fun thing on earth. But it was around the time when I was in my, I was doing the microbiology job. Uh, that's when I actually did get accepted into the grad school at University of Colorado Boulder. And I went there for my PhD. I, I had the choice between that or a master's degree um, at University of Women Mary. And I strictly only applied to Women Mary because it was a pretty interesting program. But the main reason why was because my wife went to Women Mary as an undergraduate. And she kind of she she didn't really rub it in my face, but she definitely kept pushing about how how amazing that school was. And I hated that school because she kept on because I don't know, she almost like she was bragging about it. So I was like, I'm going to see if I can get in just to prove to myself that I'm able to at least get into the school. Maybe we'll see. And the fact that I got into it made me feel really good. So if I didn't get to Women Mary, I mean, uh, University of Colorado, Boulder, I would have definitely went to Women Mary. But fast forward, got to Colorado. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> Got to Colorado and I was there for four and a half years. That's how long it took me to get my PhD, which I know is kind of, sounds kind of fast in comparison to other people. But at the same time, I actually, when COVID kicked off, I actually, it actually helped me focus even more than before. So I was actually able to do a lot more work at that point in time. But, but yeah, I went to that program and I liked evolutionary biology at that point in time because I learned about it as my, as my undergraduate. And it's, it was just one of those things where everything it allowed me to understand everything on a fundamental scale, because with evolutionary biology, it explains to you more or less why the weirdness that you see in biology is the weirdness that you see in biology. It, it breaks down the, you know, OK, well, you have natural selection. So this is why this organism looks like this, because in this environment, this is this is advantageous. This is going to be the traits that are needed to survive and thrive. Whereas in these, this organism, why does this look weird? Well, because it it was going through natural selection and then some crazy freak situation happened and genetic drift took place. And now it's it's a little it's a little weird. But at the same time, that's the reason why it looks completely different than all its cousins nearby. Mm-hmm. Same thing with sexual selection. Why? Do we always have this going on with the, with these organisms? Well, that's because the males are obvious are fighting over females, and the females are basically dictating the 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 overall outcome of the you know due to selective pressure. They're basically interested in certain traits, so the males that have those certain traits are or overly expressed, overly exposed inside, or I guess overly like emphasized in the population. Mm-hmm. And it just explains a lot out to me, and it even explains out like courting rituals and things like that, and. Just stuff you just didn't really think too much about, even behavior and why you even act the way you act. It kind of breaks it all down in a certain certain way. There's a lot of, obviously, we're very complicated. A lot of organs are very complicated. But on a very simple level, it gives you an idea. So, mm-hmm. so yeah, that's how I got a, kind of got into there. And then, of course, in order to understand biology, I mean, evolutionary biology, and understand organisms and how they evolved, you have to look at their DNA, uh, more or less. We originally thought it was just, you know, you can count the feathers on a bird or you can keep on uh, assessing the height of something. And then if you keep looking at that phenotype, you'll understand it better. It's like, yeah, to a certain degree, but you have to look at the DNA to really get down to the nitty gritty of what's going on. And that, and in order to look at DNA, especially gigabytes versus gigabytes worth of data, you're going to have to learn how to do bioinformatics 
and and learn how to code. So I taught myself how to code um, and Bash and R and a little bit of, no, I think it was just Bash and R. And then mm -hmm. fast forward, since I can code and I can understand DNA and I understand the process of cleaning up DNA and interpreting DNA, moving forward into where I'm at right now, that's essentially what was transferable. So when you're in grad school, you're essentially just building a toolbox of information or a toolbox of skill sets that you can hopefully be able to use the tools in different capacities and ways. And I chose to use bioinformatics as my tools so I can easily, or at least hopefully easily get a job outside of it. Whereas I do know that there are some people who picked tools and skills, unfortunately, that are very, very, very niche specific, which is great if you're staying within academia, but it does make it a little difficult when you're actually looking for jobs outside of academia. So I try to stick to things that other people might actually find advantageous and beneficial. And since humans have DNA, it was very, very <laughs> Yeah, but it is definitely a good picture at kind of where you were in your skill sets, some challenges that you face and how you've had to adjust to that and kind of how science and even your way of approaching scientific questions has kind of grown alongside that. So yeah, I took some I took several notes about imposter syndrome, about also being in an environment where people are telling you that you won't succeed because something is hard. Like something I feel like a lot of us experience more than maybe others. And just how, you know, even though you may not have had computational biology at the forefront of your mind from the beginning, there was kind of just that inherent need to understand large amounts of data and be able to kind of take ownership over your scientific analyses in that way. So yeah, it is kind of, I feel like, you know, in the past it was easy to kind of be siloed more on just generating tons of data. But now, you know, these days I feel like, you know, it is so important, even if someone isn't a full-time computational biologist, for people to understand their data and the, and the life cycle of it and how it's impacting research. So yeah, thank you for emphasizing that. Yeah, so I, I feel like undergrad programs are now incorporating more bioinformatics or even just like statistical coding in their courses now. But I'm curious to know how you self-taught, like what are some resources that you thought were super helpful in learning R or BASH or, you know, any other computational biology tools? So I'm definitely a, a, a doer and a, and a visual learner. And I know those are kind of like old descriptors. I know that everybody is more complicated than that. But at the same time, for me, in order for me to understand or at least learn something, I need to actually physically experience it. That's not the that's that's for like workplace stuff. Emotionally, I'm 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 very complicated, but in a good way. So I can I can I, I can put myself in people's shoes really really well. I don't have to experience getting slapped to understand that getting slapped doesn't, doesn't make you feel good. Yeah, but fair, fair. <laughs> yeah, I think that. But uh, basically, for for right off the bat, uh, my PI had a lot of data, and it's funny because she didn't she couldn't really break it down or utilize it, but she had it available, and she had all these um, whole genome sequence data that she spent a lot of money on. So when I got into the my 
program, she was like, well, yeah, I got this information. I got this, all this data available. If you want to learn how to do this, you can use this data and do your PhD off of this. So initially I just started trying my best to either take courses, which they're very limited in my department, especially at that time. I think they're, they've actually kind of grown since then, but take courses in bioinformatics slash just like genomics and also take courses and talk to PIs who I knew, at least knew the information or grad students, other grad students or postdocs who knew the information. So for me personally, the main thing I'll say my strength was, was actually looking and finding people who knew that, who knew how to do the skills, that knew the, the, the analyses and knew what to do and bugging them all the time. Uh, that was, that was like my thing. And the interesting thing was since I'm such an extrovert anyway, surprisingly, it, it was just, it was just, I don't know. It was really easy for me. I basically just ran down the hall and like, Hey, you here? Cool. I got this air and I don't know what this is, but I need your help. Can you please help me out? Please, please, please. I'll, I'll buy you something. I don't care. I don't got a lot of money, but I'm gonna find something to buy you. Please help me out. And people would just be like, oh yeah, man, they'd be really willing to help me out. So that was actually the main way I learned was trying error, finding somebody who can answer, who helped me out. And if people couldn't help me out, then I'll go to the internet, but you know, Stack Overflow is terrible for people who are beginning. So I always recommend maybe just try to take some courses, but the courses won't do you justice if you are somebody who has to like, like do it on your own data. And the other thing is for me personally, I can take a course in something, but if I'm, if I don't have, if I can't actually like apply it to what I'm currently doing, I won't understand it as well versus again, just applying it to what I'm currently doing. So that's one of the other reasons why a lot of the data, a lot of the research I'm doing right now is a little bit all over the place. It has an under, underlining theme, but it's a little, little all over the place because I'm trying to learn a lot more complex analyses right now. But the best way, again, for me to learn it is for me to do it. Um, and I kind of hold myself accountable to make sure I understand it. And I, and I try my best to learn it. Um, in, in the, the, the best practice type type scenario. So, so yeah, unfortunately I would, I kind of wish I was like a computer science background, had a computer science background. And then I kind of went into biology because I think I've been a little bit easier versus being biology focused within computer science is a little bit more on the, the in the, the, for, the background in my head, but mm. oh no, so far so good. I'm, I'm still kicking it. So, you know, yeah, I feel like a lot of people in the comp biospace are like that. Like if they yeah. come in with the biology side, they're like, dang, I wish I knew more computer science and, and vice versa. I, I definitely feel the same way. I feel I wish that I knew. Well, I feel like I know the computer science I need to know, but mm-hmm. I wish I was, you know, a little bit more quicker with it. Yeah. I feel like there's there's always something I feel like this is going to be missing and I really just want to be at peace with where I am. It's so interesting because this might be relevant, but there's like this Reddit post going around on this bioinformatics thread or subreddit. I don't know how Reddit works, but I use it sometimes. And it's like the title the title of it was when will I finally be competent in bioinformatics? And they were just kind of like it was kind of like a journal entry on just like, I never feel like I know enough of literally anything. And even though I know, you know, the beginnings of these different pockets of different areas, I feel like that just makes me focus so much more on what I just don't know. And like, 
I don't know. Do you guys? I mean, yes. The answer is yes. We we kind of all feel that way. But like, when do you feel like you're gonna not? You know. So on that topic in particular, it's funny because I feel like out of all the fields, like if you were to look at like chemistry, I don't think chemistry moves as fast like bioinformatics. Like we we still have the same amount of elements that we've had back then, and we might have added a few more to them. But even those elements are super unstable, and them things. When I say unstable, I mean like it was created and then it destroys itself within like a few seconds. I'm like, ooh, I have a new element. It's like, yeah, whatever. Ain't not, ain't not uh, places on a periodic table anyway. So, but for bioinformatics, it's like every two years a software becomes irrelevant and then a new one is like the ooh, using the the ABC method. No, nah, man, it's all about the CDE method. It's like, what? When did that come out? 2022. What? That came out just last year, but everybody in the field is using that. How's everybody in the field? Trust me, no reviewer is going to look at your paper unless you have this, the, the whatever method I just said, CDE, CDE method. That's, that's like the thing. So like, you're never, I feel like you're never going to feel like you have a grip on things because it's, it's evolving faster than we can even keep up half the time. And of course with like machine learning and things like that, again, is always something new. And even how you interpret that is always new. The, the good thing about at least how I grew up, how I like developed my bioinformatics skills is that it was through the evolutionary biology framework. And with that one, that is really old school. Like things don't change in evolutionary biology except for maybe like every 10 years. Literally, there's a 10, I can look back every, every decade or so and tell you like the fundamental shift that happened in everybody's mind as far as how to interpret this stuff in that, that lens. So for me, I just had to apply the computational side of things just enough to make sure I interpret it that way. You go into humans and you start dibble dabbling and all this other stuff. No, those things are also constantly changing. So I agree with you and I sympathize with everybody who feels that way. (laughs) I think in this field, it's just not going to get better. Not for a little while. Yeah, I feel like there's new tools constantly coming out, but I think, and this is my hope, I hope that like when I get to the point of being able to like look at a method and and kind of inherently know like, oh, that's a good method or like I see what they did there versus a, all right, this is a new tool. I guess I'll try it out, see what works. I feel like when I get to the point where I can like evaluate a new method based off of like, you know, intuition of what I know and like reading it and see how it works and being like, oh yeah, that's a good tool. I feel like, I feel like I'll, I'll make it not there yet, but mm-hmm. I feel like that's the point where I feel like I made it. I think that you are already there in a lot of areas. I mean, we were just talking about self-sizing <laughs> convolution and you were like, you, you know, you were like, yeah, I mean, you were, you were, we were talking about some of the methods other studies were using and you were like, yeah, I don't, I disagree with these methods. And a lot of people agree with what you were saying. I'm like, I think you, you, you're definitely further along. You think you are in a lot of ways. And I feel like maybe that could be another thing. Maybe the fact that we are all in a field that moves so fast that we always feel like we're behind, but in actuality, we're a lot, we're a lot more up to date and like knowledgeable than what we think. Probably for y'all. I don't know about me, but definitely for y'all. Probably for y'all. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, I feel like any topic that even remotely intersects with machine learning, it's just like pick something to focus on. And if you're if you haven't read 20 papers within the last 24 hours, then you you blink and you miss it, you know. So it's just like 
I feel like at some point you I'm I'm working on yeah just becoming comfortable with like my skill set just like you emphasized earlier I guess for people that might be worried about I don't know researching something that is quote unquote out of date or you know how do you stay up on the latest research I mean those transferable skills of like you know actually the programming and understanding how to think about uh, methods and approaches from a computational perspective, then, you know, maybe you can just focus on, you know, applying that to different problems. And I think that my perspective is like, maybe that is why people think coming in from the computational end is better than the life science end, because you have the skills to do literally everything, almost everything we need to do, right? Not all, not for instance, statisticians are not always necessarily the best programmers per se, uh, or they may not necessarily have that extensive computer science experience. So, you know, we're all coming in with our strengths and weaknesses. I think, I think it's, I think you gotta sit back and look at what you actually can do and just like basically look yourself in the mirror. I'm like, okay, look, you're a computational biologist. First of all, say that really fast. That that's a that's a big title. That's the first thing. Second thing, you understand biology, which is a STEM field, which is I think still in the considered the hard STEM, and that's that's difficult. You but you understand that, and you understand how to code. That's something else that people don't really get the grasp on. And you won't you pick the career where it was both of them intersecting each other, like in this perfect dance. You're doing stuff that's really complicated and really complex. You are an, are an awesome person. I'm not saying awesome people are only people who do complicated stuff, but you definitely chose some really interesting, cool stuff that requires a lot of brain power to process and get through. So, like, you know what I'm saying? You got to pat yourself on the back, like, yeah, man, you're killing it. So, no, you might not be as caught up as like whatever machine learning thing is going on, but you also doing a whole lot of cool stuff right now. And honestly, the things that you're probably doing, again, high level and on top of that probably still having a very high impact whether we're doing machine learning or not or whatever these other methods so i think that's something else we probably need to do a little bit more kind of just just appreciate the fact that we're just we're kicking butt at something that not a lot of people can probably do or at least not a lot of people maybe want to i don't know i did want to come back to kind of the community and scientific engagement to talk about your connections with HBCUs. Um, so my one question is just in your experience, you know, how can we build better bridges between, you know, training programs and frameworks at HBCUs? Do you feel like you're only able to do what you, you're doing through your place of work or are there other community initiatives that could be explored? Hmm. So I don't know. I'm a little bit, I'm a little bit of an odd duck in the grand scheme of things. Cause this is, st- these are things that I've been doing for a long time. When I was an undergraduate, I was something called a biology ambassador. And I basically talked to people and talked to parents and talked to students. And of course the school I went to was, was very diverse, just throwing it out there. But I was definitely working and working with people and working with like brand new undergraduates and making them feel comfortable. And something I really wanted to do is make sure people who look real similar to me feel very comfortable and felt felt like they can actually like, you know, achieve whatever they wanted to achieve. Cause I know, like I said, the imposter syndrome is real. At that time, I didn't even know what that was. I just thought that I was just a weirdo. But 
I like doing that. And then when I went to grad school, I mean, when I was a high school teacher, I was working at an inner city school, which kind of further fueled my fire. And then while I was doing that, I was also volunteering at elementary schools, helping kids learn how to read, which of course they're all inner city schools at the same time, because I don't know really why I kept pushing and gravitating towards that, but that's just the things I like to do. I just like helping help mm-hmm. teach people and help people feel, help, help people feel good. Maybe because I, I wanted more of that. So I didn't want people, I don't like people feeling that way, but it was the same thing when I went to, when I went to, went to grad school. Cause I was a, I used to volunteer at uh, science fairs at schools and obviously it's Colorado. So there's a lot less people <laughs> of diverse background yeah. there. Like a lot of people who are, I mean, ba- barely anybody who's like that, but I, I definitely found, I founded or helped found a, a group called STEM Roots, which is a all, all like minority based grad students helping like minority undergraduates get into grad school. And we basically did seminars and put together events and things like that to the point where we got like this presidential award. And that was pretty awesome. And then of course, you know, I was also, I was also teaching a lot and I was also a tutor and things like that. And of course now, oh, and then I was the vice president of graduate students, which of course at that point I was trying to help out as well. The point I'm trying to make is for me, this is just something I've been doing for like well over a decade. But then at the yeah, same you're time, you're not new so, to this. Yeah. So it was just one of those things where like, even if, if RCI was like, bro, you need to focus on your work. I'll probably be like, cool. Well, when I'm not working, I'm not doing things that y'all doing. I'm just going to be doing this anyway. Uh, hence why even like later on today, I'm going to go, um, I'm teaching biology at Wake Tech because uh, that's what I, I like to teach. And of course, because of the fact that I came from a background where, you know, I went to community colleges, I went to community college and took some, some community college courses. And I met really awesome instructors who really helped me understand things. And on top of that, instructors who actually looked like me, which is very rare to find mm-hmm. it was a situation where I kind of want to do the same thing to see if I can help people again, who look like me and, and who maybe don't have the funds or maybe just don't want to do a four-year institution. I feel like you kind of got to go where you think that, where, where you think that, the people that you want to help are, and that's why I'm there. And I mean, that's why I'm also affiliate uh, professor at you know, uh, North Carolina A&T. So RTI, you know, this is, I, I, of course I found, I found my niche because it was funny. I, I, when I was even applying for the job and everything and they're asked and, and even afterwards, I, I was asking about, Hey, is there any teaching capabilities or is there any way I can kind of do any, any kind of outreach here? And they're like, we really don't do that, but you might be able to find something. And sure enough, within the first year, I was definitely finding, I was able to connect with people who are actually doing things with HBCUs and things like that. So mm-hmm. I would say basically, it, even if you can't find it at your, at like the institution or at the, at the job that you're at, you can always find ways to, to give back or find ways to, to help better your community. And, and on top of that, they're always almost everybody, every, every one of those outlets are always welcome, welcoming new people, as long as you have the passion to do it. I don't really know where my passion came from per se, but it ain't going anywhere, obviously. The last question that we have, I've heard, I've learned so much about you today and, uh, I'm honestly a little inspired. So I I would like to know what advice would you give to your younger self just in terms of, I don't know, things that would make things easier for you or maybe 
to discuss like maybe you would tell your younger self what imposter syndrome is and how to get around it but yeah i'd like to know what what advice would you give your younger self and in order to make kind of your journey smoother or better in some way i would say hmm I guess it depends on how old Javon was. But I think one of the things I would probably tell him is it's okay to kind of be who you want to be in the grand scheme of things. And it's okay to, to have big dreams and, and, and basically things of that nature. I, I never like, between however old I was when I first started, I guess, probably thinking up until now, I never really felt like I can do anything. I always felt like I can, I just do, I should, I'm just going to be capable of doing just enough to get by. So I was always basically most of my life, I was always very scared that the good things that do happen to me would disappear because I, I, I never had the capabilities of doing them. So eventually somebody, and again, which goes into imposter syndrome, but of course I'll tell a young Javon that you probably won't know what the hell that means. So I'm just going to say it this way, but I think it's okay to actually like have your dreams and have big dreams and, and actually be excited and happy about these things and not just kind of be fearful that something's going to, something bad is going to happen along the way and everything. Just kind of look at the positives. Don't focus too much on the negatives. That's the first thing I would say. And then the second thing I would say is, uh, Obviously, I'm talking with you right now, little Javon. That means that you achieve most of your dreams. So with that being said, I don't know. If anything, just keep dreaming, dreaming bigger. Because at this point in time, one of the things I've been asking myself was, what am I supposed to do now? I kind of got up to the point where I, I thought I was supposed to stop, but I, I don't have any goals and desires of stopping right now. So I need to figure out bigger and better things. I ain't going to be no Elon Musk, but at the same time, I need, I need more, I need more, more, more projects, more things to do. So hopefully, Javon, if I do get a chance to talk to him, we'll become inspired and come up with better and more interesting things in the future. I don't know. Of course, I got real meta, but <laughs> that's kind of how I think anyway. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm definitely inspired and a large reason why we Same. want to continue to you know, highlight um, black scientists in the computational field is so that we we can serve inspiration to others. So you coming on and talking about your journey is probably going to inspire, hopefully, you know, the, a younger fleet of scientists before you and show them what goals and things they should aspire to. So thank you. Yeah. And especially I appreciate you sharing every aspect the the reality of what it is like to navigate a non-linear path and not just the achievements and everything that goes well but you know the reality for a lot of people also who are told that like stem might not be for them or that this is too difficult for them is that like yeah it does get difficult and i think for me I, i had a hard time you know grappling with failure and not attaching it to who i am and my personal self worth so thank you for that extra inspiration and affirmation in my journey as well. And I hope also other people are inspired. Yeah, I don't know. I think I will say this. I was, you know, I'm not ashamed to say it, but, you know, you know, go to therapy, talk to people, work, work yourself yes. out. I'm about life. 
But I remember one yeah. thing that my therapist always told me. She was like, "Yeah, you kind of a weird duck because you <laughs> like you're you're so at ease with failing at things." And I thought I was like, "Yeah, I feel more comfortable when I'm failing at things because at that point I know I know how to like beat it next time, mm-hmm. and I understand it better. I understand the process better." So I'm not saying I just want to fail at everything, but it, for me personally, and again, from what, what she kind of took from it and everything, from what, you know, our conversations and stuff, it was just like, yeah, you, you will fail at things and get like double motivation to, to, to do different and apply different things, which obviously goes into like the science of method. I am a scientist. Like, mm-hmm. so no, I, I always tell people, dude, don't, yeah, don't be scared to fail at stuff. There's nothing wrong with failure. I, honestly, I think it's more about how you fail. If you fail and you stay failed, did it, then at that point, <laughs> like, okay, well, you know, let's assess some things. But if you fail and you apply what you learn to it, you know, you know, all you got is time at that point. So I'm just do it again, try it again. I mean, I failed at every, basically everything I've tried at least once. gonna just wrap up thanks so much for joining us today dr carter we really enjoyed learning about your um career path your outreach efforts and we wish you luck in your future endeavors and hopefully we get to see you again in our seminar series our black and comp bio seminar series and, and where you can talk more about your research um to our listeners don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss out on future episodes until next time The Black Women in Computational Biology Network is an online networking platform accelerating opportunity at the intersection of biology, math, and computer science worldwide. This podcast is produced, edited, and published independently by Janae Adams and Melissa Minto. We'd like to thank our community at Cambridge Innovation Center Philadelphia for their studio resources as well. Find out more at blackwomencontinbio.org or get a jumpstart on all things BWCB at our Linktree link, which you can find at linktr.ee forward slash bwcb.